The reading this evening is from uh, Acts 18, verses 1 to 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptised. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sothenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. I don't know um, if anybody read the Telegraph, um, Telegraph article, oh, I think about four or five years ago, um, when the Americans were still um, holding Basra before the Brits got there. Um, it was a story about an ex-Wycliffe person that was still um, working out in Iraq, um, doing a church plant there. Um, had a flat a few doors down from the local mosque. Um, and spent quite a lot of time talking to the locals, often on a Friday as they went to the mosque. And over time, um, some of the locals became Christians, including a local imam, one of the mosque leaders. And as time progressed, and a few more people became Christians, so the community got more and more vociferous and more angry. And in the end, they um, took um, the ex-Wycliffe person with some of these converts to the Americans who had power at that time. And they wanted the Americans to sort something out. They said that these people are proselytizing, um, this is disrupting local community, there's going to be big problems if you don't sort it out. Um, the Americans basically said, well, that comes under your Sharia law, it's nothing to do with us in our occupation, um, and said we're not going to do anything about it. And... As a consequence, another imam who had become a Christian got beaten up um, and the Americans stood on. If you read that article, let me know because I think I just made it up. But 
that's not that dissimilar to this scenario that we're talking about here in Paul in Corinth. Paul in a foreign country, local opposition. He's a brave man. There are other people that bravely become Christians. There's physical violence and the ruling forces look on. So what's this brave, brave man and this brave people? What's this story of these people in foreign countries doing brave things got to do with me, with us? You may be sitting there thinking, I'm not particularly brave. Um, I'm not called to be a missionary in foreign parts. I live in the home counties. Very little threat of physical violence. What is in it here for me? You might be sitting thinking that. Or on the other hand, you might be sitting thinking, well, I can see where we're going here. We're looking at verses 9 to 11. We've got a very clear message, a very clear application. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. I've got the take-home message straight away. I can switch off, start to think about this evening and tomorrow, and I know what the take-home message is. And in many respects, you'd be right. That is the take-home message. It is very, very simple and very straightforward what I'm going to be talking about tonight. It is the emphasis of do not be silent, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, I am with you. And if that's enough, that you know that's the take-home message, that's the executive summary, as it were, for you to go away and be able to apply that more in your lives, that's great, you can switch off, um, but you will miss out probably on a mistake that you have made in interpreting the latter part of verses 9 to 11. And it's a mistake that actually changes the perspective of possibly the motivation why we should apply these words to our lives um, as seriously as we can. So what I want to do is look at the mistake, first of all, that I suspect most of us make when we look at verses 9 to 11. Then just to go through 9, 10 and 11, thinking about this very clear message to us, it almost doesn't need an explanation as to what we need to do, and hopefully to get us closer to thinking about taking it more and more seriously in our lives. Don't about you, um, don't know whether you often mistake meanings and things, and you see something, you think, well, quite clearly that means that, and then later on you find out actually completely opposite was true. I heard a joke um, on Chris Evans, you may have heard it for those who listen to Radio 2 about, um, oh, probably two months ago, um, I'll tell it to you, um, just see if you get it. Um, so here it is. Prepare yourselves. There's a rooster, a cockerel, and the cockerel gets taken over and there's somebody that says, I want you to work for MI6, Secret Service. I want you to be a spy. We need some chickens and we need some cockerels and some roosters and they can get behind enemy lines. You'll be great. You'll be great as a spy. And this rooster, this cockerel, says, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And during his induction, he gets introduced to 007 as part of his induction. And he says, hello, pleased to meet you. What's your name? And 007 says, Bond. James Bond. And how about you? And he says, Ken Chicken. Now, hands up if anybody gets that, just as I said that, Ken Chicken. Well, that's good, good. Because I heard that, that's exactly how Chris Evans said that joke. And I drove along and I thought, Ken Chicken. 
Exactly. It must be Kentucky Fried Chicken. It must be something to do with Kentucky Fried Chicken. Ken Chicken. It must be something to do with Kentucky Fried Chicken. I kept on thinking about it. I kept on thinking about it. No, it's not. I th- I'm sure it's something to do with Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's quite clear the meaning. But, as I got further and further on, I realised that actually he hadn't told the joke very well. He should have said, my name is Ken. Chick Ken. Bond. James Bond. My name's Ken. Chick Ken. It's a very good joke, really, if you think about it. But the meaning is completely different to what seemed to me was going on. Some people are still mulling it over there. Ken. Chick Ken. Yeah? Okay. Um, if you've still not got it at the end, ask me on the door. I'll try to explain it to you. So quite clearly, there was one meaning that I thought was there, and it was another meaning. Um, when I was seven or eight, that kind of age, I used to go to my granddad's. And actually, every time I go to my granddad's, he would say, at some point during the afternoon, I'd say, Nigel, how high is a Chinaman? And being seven or eight, and quite concrete in my thinking, I'd say, well, I don't know. Um, could be all kinds of heights. And he said, no, no, how high is a Chinaman? I said, well, I don't know, four foot eleven. And he said, no, no, how high is a Chinaman? And I said, well, seven foot eight. He said, no, no, how high is a Chinaman? And, and I just couldn't understand what he was saying. And he said, I would keep on giving him different answers, how high is a Chinaman? I thought it was just nonsensical. Um, and then he would say, no, no, how high is the name of a Chinaman? And I still wouldn't get it. He said, you know, he would explain to me, how is his Christian name? High is his surname? So just a statement of fact, how high is a Chinaman. I still couldn't get it because I was concrete. It was, only, it was only when I got to about 18, I suddenly clicked. Oh yes, that's the name of a Chinaman. He's called How High. Again, the meaning meant something completely different. And more close to home, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. RSV. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Again, for many years, as a, as a seven or eight year old, I... Why would I not want the Lord as my shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why would I not want the Lord as my shepherd? That's, that's the only way I could see that that meant. I knew it couldn't be true, because it went against everything else I was being taught week in, week out. And yet, that was the meaning that I could, that's the only meaning I could give to it. It was only later on, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. And so we come to this verse here. Paul is spoken to by the Lord, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and nobody is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Because I have many people in this city. And that quite clearly says that there's people in the city of Corinth that are already Christians, um, the people that are friends, um, will be friends to Paul, there are believers already there, that Paul doesn't need to be afraid, because there are many people in that city, already Christians, and so he doesn't need to be afraid of being attacked. Quite clearly, that's the meaning when I read that. And I already started to think, well, okay, what does this say to us? But actually, that isn't the meaning. When one looks at the context and the Greek, etc., etc., through commentaries, actually what God is saying to Paul is, I've got specific people in Corinth who are ready to respond to your words, who will respond to your words and become Christians because of what you say to them. You are going to have the privilege and the responsibility of talking to people that are already prepared and ready and will be responsive. You will have the privilege and the responsibility of telling them about the good news of Jesus 
that his death and resurrection means that our sins can be forgiven, we no longer have to have regrets, that if we put Jesus as our saviour and the Lord of our lives, then we will have a relationship with God right now and for eternity. And there are specific people who are already ready to hear that message and they will respond. I have many people in this city. It was a massive word of encouragement to Paul, a very specific prophecy almost, that he shouldn't be afraid. God is with him and there are specific people that are going to respond to his message and he's going to be the means by which they become Christians. A fantastic, the greatest privilege anybody can ever have. And that's the context for verses 9 to 11. So let's just look at this very, very clear application for us. Do not be afraid. That's an encouragement to me. Paul must have been prone to being afraid, to be told not to be afraid. There must have been things going on for Paul as he spoke about God and about the Lord that made him afraid. And for quite clearly in his context, he had the fear of being beaten up, potentially being killed, being put into prison. His physical well-being was potentially in jeopardy. And yet, God doesn't say to him, fear not, you've got the answers. Fear not, you've got the charisma. Fear not, you've got the gift of evangelism. Fear not, you've got the social skills to be able to talk about me. You've got the intellect to talk about me. No, he says, fear not, I am with you. And that's very, very clearly what God is saying to us today. Fear not, keep on speaking, for I am with you. I am with you. I can be trusted. And in a sense, the glorious thing about that is God is saying, trust me in this situation, I will be with you and leave the results to me. You've got the most incredibly, incredible privilege of talking about God without virtually none of the responsibility of the results. That's down to God. So what's our fear? We haven't got, I suspect, in the home counties, we don't have the fear of being put into prison. We don't have the fear of being beaten up. Um, what's our fear in keeping silent about Jesus? I just want you to do um, a little experiment to maybe think about this. Um, only take about 30 seconds or so. For the next 30 seconds while I stop talking, I just want you to glance around people in the congregation um, and don't say out loud, but internally, just give them a rating of 0 to 10 in terms of how fashionable you think they are. <laughs> just, no, not, don't say out loud, no, so nobody knows. Just a little glance around. Nort being absolutely the least fashionable person you can possibly imagine, has not got a clue about 21st century fashion. Ten being, this is a person right on the cutting edge of fashion. They are so fashionable that actually they're actually setting a trend rather than following a trend. So naught to ten, just glance around, just very quickly, just a quick, just naught to ten. Um, don't say it out loud, unless it's a ten, then obviously tell them, and they'll be very pleased to hear that. Just very quickly, just very internally, naught to ten. Um, don't linger too long on people, otherwise they'll get suspicious that you're giving them a low mark. Okay, okay, well, I do have to do that, that's, that's long enough. Um, did anybody give anybody a zero? Don't say who that was if you did. No, so no, well, you gave somebody a zero. Quite harsh. Um, <laughs> so one person gave somebody a zero. Did anybody give anybody a ten? Ten plus, yeah. Ten plus. Somebody got ten plus. Okay. 
So, so I don't want to, I don't want to name names. Um, who got the ten plus and who got the zero? Vast majority were not naught and not ten. One it sounds like was naught. Um, one sounds like was a ten. But by and large, by and large, everybody was in the safe zone of being reasonably in touch with what you're supposed to wear in 21st century Great Britain. And that's because, partly, um, that actually as human beings we're very, very sensitive to social approval. We want to be approved by others. We don't want to um, not fit in. And if we wore something that uh, was completely outlandish, it would actually separate us in a way. It actually gains some form of disapproval. You would say, well, people might say, well, actually, no, it's about comfort. I just wear what I'm comfortable with. Well, one of the most comfortable things you can wear is a cat suit, um, a jumpsuit, something like that. You know, one old zip-up. Nobody wears that. I've never seen anybody in church in a, in a jumpsuit. And that is one of the most comfortable things you can wear. And why not? Because you would get some social disapproval. You would get some funny comments. You would get some funny looks. As you walk down along Crendon, people would think, oh, they're a little bit strange. They don't really know social, um, social cues very well. And that's what we can fear. We can fear social disapproval, that we don't quite fit in. We look a bit like a fanatic, maybe, if we talk about Jesus, or we say we went to church at the weekend. Um, maybe it's a kind of a social disapproval where we think, actually, if I talk anything about church or Jesus, then the person I'm talking to is going to feel uncomfortable, and they're going to think I, that I don't know that they feel uncomfortable, and then that's going to make me look like I'm not really in touch with... Um, good social skills, and so on and so on and so on. Not that dissimilar to thinking about the person that talks all about sport and sport and sport to somebody that's not interested in sport. They're just, they're not aware that they're talking about something that they really shouldn't be in that situation. Or the person that goes on and on and on about the latest software to somebody that, like me, doesn't really know anything about software and is not very interested in it. It's, it's that kind of feeling that we can have, the fear, potentially, of looking like we are social misfits. And in a sense, we might say, well, actually, yeah, we don't want to look like social misfits because if we lose friends as a result of that, then we are less able to talk to them about Jesus if they're no longer our friends because we're fanatics and misfits. Or if colleagues at work or people at school um, think we're misfits or fanatics, then actually I've lost them. I, I won't be able to talk to them. I can't even... Um, have access to them to talk about Jesus to them or to talk about going to church. But I suspect for most of us, the problem isn't that we're talking too much about Jesus, that we're talking too much about church, that we're talking too much about the things of God. I suspect that, if anything, it's probably the opposite. I suspect for most of us, if you're anything like me, we're like the over-biased parent the parent that's given the job of refereeing the football match, and their son is playing, and they're so intent on not appearing biased towards their son that they go the other way. And every time the son makes a tackle, they blow for a foul. Every time the son scores a legitimate goal, they say it's offside. Every time the son talks to somebody in his team, they book him for dissent. They're so intent on not appearing biased towards their son, that actually they go the opposite way and are actually massively biased against. And I suspect, if you're anything like me, that's probably more of what we're like. 
And so this verse to us and to me is a very pertinent one. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. I'm sure this verse is saying, Nigel, don't bottle it. I'm with you. Don't bottle it when somebody says to you, what did you do at the weekend? And I list all the things that I did. And do I mention church or not? If I do mention church, do I add another sentence or two to say um, what the sermon was like or what the sermon was about or something that happened in church? Because if I was talking about tennis, I would certainly add a sentence or two or three or four or five or ten or twenty. If I was talking about um, the cricket match that um, I've just been involved in and how we were 300 runs behind and I don't know the score, etc., I would give at least a sentence about that if I was talking about that, if somebody said, what did you do at the weekend? So, Nigel, don't bottle him. Maybe say that you went to church. Maybe say that I, I delivered a sermon. Maybe say something about the sermon. In, a, in as natural way as possible, but don't be that over-biased parent that goes the other way. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. I am with you. And the results we leave to God. And so we come to this part of the verses where it says... Because I have many people in this city. Now, probably most of us haven't had a specific prophecy that there are specific people ready to respond to something that we say about Jesus. However, there are specific people where we are probably the only Christian that they have contact with. I suspect that for most of us there are people where we fall into that category. So in a way, we are Jesus to those people. Our words and our deeds are Jesus to those people, those specific people. For this moment in time, we're the only chance that they have of seeing anything or hearing anything about Jesus, about God, about faith, about church, about the eternal things. And somebody's got to speak to them. Somebody's got to invite them to events, say. Somebody's got to lend them a book, say. Somebody's got to bring up a conversation at some point, something about eternal things. And so why not you? Why not you? Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you. And fortunately, I had the... Um, I had the privilege a little bit last week um, where I could have gone either way played cricket, we lost very sweltering day um, had, the, had the tea afterwards um, having a bit of a drink um, not too many, just um, all within norms and um, the way that one should and it just the conversation was meandering in various ways, there was me and Steve Don Levy um, and about four or five other people that I don't think um, are church people um, hadn't ever spoken to them anything about God, church, Jesus. Um, and it just so happened to say, oh, are you playing next week, Nigel? Scenario one, I say, no, sorry, I can't. And then we go off into something else. I've bottled it. Scenario two, which fortunately for this sermon, I said, oh, no, sorry, I can't play. I'm delivering a sermon. And for the next five minutes, for the next five minutes, that conversation with those four or five people that run church, with me and Steve just chatting, in the bar, we talked about church, we talked about confirmation, 
We talked about baptism. We talked about what a sermon is. We talked about how Christians can be different when we see them in day-to-day life and when they're in church. We talked about the building project. Um, Some of the people talked about their faith histories in terms of their experiences of church. And by the end of the conversation, Steve had even told them that he had got baptised relatively recently. I don't even know the outcome of that conversation because I was talking to somebody else. I'm pleased I didn't bottle it, um, partly because I wouldn't have had that anecdote for this sermon. But equally, there is now the potential that there will be other conversations at some point with those people that I play cricket with. It's God saying, Nigel, there are specific people that you play tennis with, you play football with, you play cricket with, that you work with, that you socialise with, that I want you not to be silent with. There are specific people that only you um, can represent for me, as it were. At the very least, Nigel, don't bottle it when naturally you would talk about a few sentences about me, like you would about tennis. Don't be the overbiased parent, Nigel, because I'm with you. Do not be silent. Don't be afraid. Just want to finish with um, a little story that I heard. It's a story about somebody that planted a apple seed. Somebody planted the apple seed, um, and over the course of a good number of years, a number of people, possibly many, many people, came to the apple seed, watered the apple seed, cultivated the apple seed. And every night, every single night, a mysterious gardener came and did something with his apple seed. And over the course of years, possibly even a decade or two, with different people doing a bit of watering, a bit of tending, and this mysterious gardener in the background, the tree grew, and the tree had some apples. The apples wouldn't fall. And then, along comes a stupid, clumsy, ugly, idiotic cow. It's never seen... This tree before trips, stumbles, hits the tree. The tree shivers a tiny, tiny bit and it causes the apple to fall. There is a harvest. The apple has fallen because the cow did something. And in a way, that can be um, a metaphor for evangelism in a way that was what it was used for when I first heard it somebody said that's what evangelists are they're stupid, ugly clumsy, idiotic cow that bashes into the tree and in a way the fruit falls as a result of lots of things that have happened probably from other people cultivating the good seed of the word of God and saying something and doing something for God so I do think that this evening that those words to Paul are words to us directly and obviously. Do not be afraid. Do not be silent. Don't bottle it. I'm with you. At the very least, talk about church and faith and God in a way that gives a couple more sentences, maybe, than you would otherwise. And trust me for the results, says God. Leave the results to me. We have the most fantastic privilege 
and virtually none of the responsibility for the results. There's nothing else like that in life. And we may have the privilege of being one of those waterers, one of those tenders of that apple tree that eventually bears fruit. Or even, even better, we may have the privilege of being that stupid, ugly, clumsy, idiotic cow that bears the fruit. Amen.